This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I'm Bob Solter, and I've been looking forward to our discussion for some time because the title of the book that we're going to be talking about is Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. Now, you say that title, and in most cases, you get an immediate reaction. We're going to speak with the author of the book, Bernice Hausman. Bernice is chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine. I'm pleased to say that she is joining us on our program. First of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. In beginning this discussion, was that the only title for this book? Uh, the first part, anti-vax, was. Um, the second part, boy, that had a number of different iterations. The, um, the first one that I was working with for a long time was uh, making sense of vaccine skepticism. And then, um, then there was a time when <laughs> the title was uh, a little bit clunkier. Uh, the subtitle it was um, "What What uh, Vaccine Skepticism Tells Us About Medicine or Teaches Us About Medicine and Modernity." And that comes up. That I think now is the is the title of the conclusion to the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, the um, reframing the vaccination controversy was. Uh, conversation with the editor after she felt that the subtitles were were just not doing the book justice. And the uh, just as a funny side note, there was a long discussion about whether or not the the should be in in the um, whether it should be the vaccination controversy or whether it should should be reframing vaccination controversy or reframing vaccination controversies. And I actually did a little crowdsourcing with friends of mine over email, my colleagues of mine, about whether we should have the the, the, the in there or not. It was it was quite an amusing experience <laughs> in retrospect. The, the issue was really whether or not we were we were implying there was only one. Mm-hmm. And um, and so. Uh, it, it, in, ev- in the end, actually, it was a, a colleague of mine who used to be a journalist who said, "You need the the in there because that's going to make it um, that's going to make it more um, less academic sounding and more inviting to uh, the general reader." Which I thought was really an interesting insight, and we went with that. In your background, as I understand, you were vaccinated as a child. Uh, mm-hmm. later as an adult. And in all honesty, I was vaccinated as a child as well. You had your own children vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Why this book? Why this approach? So uh, I study medical controversies in the public sphere, and um, I was finishing up a project and looking around for a new one. And I was also uh, 
and so and and at the time i was i knew that colleagues of mine and friends of mine who had children after the two, after 2000 my kids were born in the mid 90s that they were even if they were vaccinating they were worried about vaccinating and some of them were delaying um and kind of changing the recommended schedule for their children's vaccines and I was really interested in that. I was sort of interested in why they why they had those concerns, and at the same time, I was also interested in developing um, a, a collaborative research group with students at Virginia Tech, where I was teaching at the time. And I was I was really interested in in a topic that I that would capture the uh, imagination of my students, who were mostly pre med. The the group of students that I was seeking to engage in this research and um, and teach them about how to do humanities research as a team. And um, and so I thought that this would be a good topic that would draw their interest, and I was right. Since that time, I've had different groups of four to five students every semester since 2010. Uh, doing research on this topic, and now I have moved that research group to Penn State College of Medicine, and I have medical students working with me um, on a project right now. The vaccination decisions with your own children, you describe them as non-decisions. Why? Because uh, it was... I don't know, it was just what happened when they went to the doctor as infants and children, right? The, somebody would say, well, now it's time for this vaccination, and it was sort of part of the regular set of activities that happened during well-child checkups. And I wasn't in a position at the time to think about um, to think about questioning that. And, um, and my kids also, um, my kids went to daycare. They started in daycare when they were about a year old, each of them. And there were requirements to uh, in sending your children to daycare in Virginia, just like sending them to school. So I was a conformist, like most parents, and didn't really think about it. But I also wasn't part. It was interesting because I was I was a, a member of La Leche League, and uh, which is a breastfeeding support organization. And uh, in sort of breastfeeding circles that I was in, there were parents who were questioning vaccines. But I, for some reason. That whole conversation really was not a part of my social networks when my my children were little, and I really only became aware of it, um, uh, as I said, through through colleagues and friends who were having children um, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years after my kids were born. The people who refuse vaccination, does anybody have any grasp on how strong or how um, for better, better uh, way of phrasing it, I guess is how large a group of people this is. It's the the number of chi- one of the ways that we measure this is the number of children who are are fully non vaccinated. It's still very very small in this country, um, under two percent of all children. Now that that number or the has been increasing. Um, uh, over, I think there was a there was a recent um, study done that showed that children who were born, um, I'm, I'm going to forget the actual sort of dates, but like basically there were sort of two dates that were chosen in the 2000s, and it was shown that from um, from one one uh, period to the next, the, there was an increase in the number of children who were fully unvaccinated. Now that said. There's also been a decrease over the years in the number of children who uh, 
are not vaccinated because they lack access to medical care. Um, and this this initiated started with the Vaccines for Children Act in 1993 under Bill Clinton, um, which made um, federal provision of vaccines for children on state um, um, Medicaid uh, and other forms of provision easier, and I think that the the and it, and it increased under the Affordable Care Act under Obama, as uh, insurance companies are are uh, required to provide vaccines that are routinely recommended by um, the CDC. So what you see is you see what what I would what I argue early in the book is that um, the proportion of children who are uh, sort of purposefully non-vaccinated, um, maybe increasing proportionally within the group of children who lack vaccines, but that number overall is very low. Mm. But you know the beliefs that the parents are expressing, the parents of those kids who are not vaccinated. Some people might think, eh, you know, that's kind of they're they're out there, so to speak. But their beliefs are not really fringe, are they? Uh, it depends on it depends on who you talk to. There are there are some fringe beliefs that that occur, but of course there are fringe beliefs that occur in all portions of the population. Most of us have some belief somewhere that is kind of um, an outlier. But but no, you, one of the things I try to do in the book is demonstrate that um, that things that bother people about vaccines, the people who are uh, vaccine dissenters. Um, are actually um, quite common or common trends in contemporary culture. So, for example, distrust of um, big pharma and its relationship with medical, um, sort of me- uh, government medical regulatory groups that um, make recommendations for vaccines, distrust of bureaucracy government bureaucrats making decisions for the rest of us, Um, concerns about the environment, concerns about what we do to our bodies in the service of health um, that may in fact cause other harms that we're not tracking. Those kinds of concerns are are not limited to vaccine dissenters, um, but um, it's just that they turn this, this particular set of concerns to vaccines in ways that the majority of the population does not. Mm. But vaccination, has it ever been, I guess, universally accepted in our society? No, no. There was, it's this sort of, there's a kind of a myth that um, vaccines used to be accepted, uh, you know, by the sort of, well, I guess here, I'll start again. Vaccines have been accepted by the majority of the population in this country as a preventative um, health practice. But there have always been um, a significant portion of people who resisted vaccines or who um, uh, were skeptical of vaccines or who vocally dissented. And you can see it. um, So historically, it goes uh, all the way back to the late 18th century when the smallpox vaccine was invented. And especially in the 19th century in both Britain and the United States, there were riots against compulsory vaccination. Um, And then the the another a good example is the 1950s when the polio vaccine was um, developed and then um, federally licensed and disseminated in the mid 1950s. There's this uh, sort of mythology about all of these children who were um, 
who were volunteered by their parents to take part in the the um, the, the vaccine trials, right? So these were the last um, part of the experimentation process to make sure that the vaccine was safe and effective. And it is true that hundreds of thousands of children were volunteered by their parents to get this experimental vaccine, the Salk polio vaccine. But it's also true that hundreds of thousands of parents, children in the catchment areas for the trials were held back by their parents and not allowed to participate um, in getting the experimental vaccine. And so you see there um, this kind of tension between, uh, and, and then after, even after it was disseminated, you know, licensed and disseminated, there were immediate concerns that not enough parents were getting their kids vaccinated. There had to be these sort of persuasive campaigns and mechanisms to get people to to be vaccinated. So there's always this tension um, since the invention of vaccines between those who are sort of um, proponents and, uh, you know, kind of zealous adherents and those who are more skeptical, um, who want more time, who want to see how other people respond to the vaccine, um, or who really are just against vaccination and and do not want to be vaccinated. What about media coverage of vaccines, vaccination? How has that changed over the years? So that was a really interesting finding. Um, one of the things that I was interested in looking at was, was sort of trying to answer the question of why we have such inflammatory coverage now that um, it tends to be uh, vilifying and shaming, even from very, um, you know, venerated news outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, so I had a group of students look back at um, sort of mainstream um, news reporting on vaccination from about 1980 to 2015, and what we really found is that through through the 80s and through the 90s, um, the, the news reporting was really um, what you would expect, um, relatively neutral, and there was actually a lot of sympathy for parents who were concerned about um, vaccination um, dangers. So there were uh, there was very sympathetic reporting about parental concerns with thimerosal, which is a um, mercury-based preservative that used to be used in vaccines in the United States. So the 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 reporting really changed after 2000, and, and especially, I argue, after 2004, 2006. And there were sort of a variety of, um, of uh, influences on that change, but um, 9-11 happened, and there was an increased uh, concern about bioterrorism um, and the anthrax uh, scare that happened right after 9-11. And, um, and then in 2004, there was an Institute of Medicine report that could not find connections between either thimerosal or MMR and autism. And so the, no- the notion was that there was a scientific, there was a set of scientific studies that did a large meta-analysis that demonstrated no connection between those um, the, the vaccines and autism. And then in 2006, when Gardasil, the um, human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine was um, was uh, licensed and approved and recommended for use among girl, preteen girls, there was a huge backlash when states started to try to mandate the vaccine and parents, especially parents on the Christian right, decided that uh, we're against that. And so then there became this sort of mantra in the news that um, look at these conservative parents. This is a vaccine that prevents cervical cancer. How can they not be in favor of it? And so there was the there. And then, of course, there was the introduction of social media and Facebook 2004. And so you have this this 
that, that change the way we, we report and we talk about things in the media. And you have these influences that lead us to a situation today where um, much of the reporting is vilifying and shaming, um, immediately moving towards uh, towards a um, uh, an analysis that it's got to be anti-vaxxers who are at the at the cause of every outbreak of infectious disease that we have, and the truth is always more complicated than that. Bernice Hausman is talking with us on our program. She is the author of Anti-Vax. Reframing the vaccination controversy, as I mentioned in introducing her at the beginning of our discussion, she is the chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine. You mentioned the A word a few minutes ago, autism. Mm-hmm. And since 2000, or the turn of this century, a lot of the attention that has been given vaccines has focused on the potential connection to autism. What do we really know about that potential connection? Well, it that depends on who you ask, but mm. um, there, there continue to be um, significant portions of the vaccine dissenting community that um, are committed to the idea that there's a connection between vaccines and autism. Um, the mainstream biomedical researchers have not found a linkage, and um, and so there's, uh, there continues to be uh, persistent sort of uh, uh, pressure on that point because of this disagreement. Now, what I would say is that what's interesting to a researcher like me, who's a cultural researcher in the cultural context, is the question of why in the face of such um, kind of a staunch repudiation of this idea from mainstream biomedicine, um, is there a persistent belief among people? Why, why, do, why do people go to the meetings of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC three times a year where um, a, a group of experts makes recommendations for vaccine use in the American public? Why do people go and at public comment continue to talk about the connection between vaccines and autism? To a, to a group of people who do not believe that there is a that there is a scientifically demonstrated link, so there's very very interesting sort of cultural um, cultural sort of uh, conflict going on there, and the persistence of this belief uh, in the in the face of a lack of scientific evidence, or at least a lack of scientific evidence that mainstream scientists um, agree on, is is really a kind of a fascinating cultural um, phenomenon. I don't have an answer for it. Mm. The role of parents takes many forms. And in an age where, you know, we have all this information literally at our fingertips, or at least the access to the information, how does a parent act responsibly when it comes to vaccination? Well, you know, Bob, this goes back to the question you asked me um, initially um, about my non-decisions about vaccinating my own children. Mm -hmm. And um, because I think that that it's a fascinating thing that we're, in general, when it comes to um, um, health practices, we're 
uh, in, recommended by many different kinds of experts to do our homework and to to um, to get it to, to inform ourselves about what we're doing and not do things blindly. And yet, with vaccination, we are in fact rewarded by following um, uh, sort of the the um, recommendations. Um, of the CDC in uh, following a particular schedule when it comes to vaccinating our children and, in fact, vaccinating ourselves. What we see is that school entry mandates in this country, which are state-level laws that um, demand that um, children have a certain uh, number and kind of vaccines and boosters before they go to enter into uh, organized uh, daycare or schooling, that those are really what maintains a rather high level of vaccination in this country, because when we see vaccines that are recommended but then not included in those school entry mandates, uptake is much lower. Uptake is much, much lower. And so whether or not that is um, an effect of parents paying more attention and doing their homework or just the logistics of vaccination um, that, that mean that they just don't, you know, get around to it is very unclear, but um, you, you see that people's sort of disposition is not necessarily to, to follow through with recommendations unless there's a kind of a, a, a situation in which, you, you know, the rubber meets the road and you have to, otherwise your children, child won't be able to go to school. question about parental responsibility, of course, is the, is the focus of one of my chapters, and it really is this... Um, Parents, for parents who do take that question seriously and 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 are are dedicated to to ensuring that they know everything that goes into their child's bodies, um, they oftentimes run into a wall where it's unclear to them that vaccination is safe based on what they see as the ingredients when they when they research themselves the ingredients of vaccines. Now, on the other hand, you could argue that we have um, history of um, uh, safe monitoring of vaccines once they have been licensed and approved and are routinely given out to millions of children every year that the, we have a sort of set of monitoring activities where the safety and efficacy of vaccines is, in fact, monitored quite closely by the federal government and others, and that um, that, that monitoring system does not demonstrate significant adverse um, reactions to um, to the routine uh, vaccines of childhood. But that's where you really have a kind of a disagreement among um, vaccine dissenters and mainstream um, biomedical government regulators. Final question for you, because this is um, an area that has been in the news in different areas of the country. Um, in New Jersey, this was a huge issue recently at the uh, state house mm-hmm. where um, there was a move to abolish exemptions. The non-medical exemptions. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that's actually been, I think we're in the, in the middle of a, a really interesting kind of natural experiment with respect to that. Um, New York um, got rid of its non-medical exemptions this year. California did that in 2016. Maine uh, has done so, but I think it will take effect next year or the year after. Um, and I believe Washington State got rid of non-medical exemptions with respect to measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR.
So it's an interesting, historically, non-medical exemptions have worked to dissipate political dissent about vaccination by allowing some people who are really ideologically or otherwise um, opposed to vaccination a kind of an out um, so that the vast majority of people will be vaccinated and the mandate will hold. So it's kind of like you allow some people to opt out in order to ensure that most people opt in. The the So historically, that it's worked that way since the first conscientious objector laws were passed in Great Britain in 1898. So we will see whether or not in this country now, given this sort of begin the changes in the laws, whether or not um, the there's there's a change in the way that these um, vaccine mandates work politically. My apprehension is that by you know people who are vac- who are against vaccination are very very worried about um, the uh, increasing. Uh, uh, mandates by restricting the the non medical exemptions, and it has. I think it's going to lead to increased political dissent from vaccination because people are going to feel backed up against a wall, and you see that in the incredibly vociferous dissent that occurs when this legislation is considered at the state level. I also think that you will see, as we have seen in California, an increase in medical exemptions and an increase in homeschooling, as the the law can only cover those children who are in organized organized schools. And so the question of whether or not the, that outcome is worth the marginal increase in vaccination levels, um, I think we'll, we will be able to track that and study that in the future, states like New Jersey and New York have actually extremely high levels of vaccination, and um, the question of whether these um, these laws are going to give us higher levels, um, I think, is uh, remains to be seen. Bernice Hausman, who is chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine and the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy, our guest in this portion of our program. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Anne Ligori's Talking Golf is along at 7 this Sunday morning. The fabulous Karina Delgado, who joins us from one of our sister stations, The Drive in Washington, D.C., with a contribution, timely one, too. I'm Karina Delgado with 94.7 The Drive. Now, I know with the COVID-19 pandemic taking up so much of our mental space, it's easy to forget that things like Earth Day are right around the corner. But I am on the phone today with the Vice President of Conservation International to speak about our Earth, the environment, and the COVID-19 crisis, and how the two are inextricably intertwined. Hi, Shyla. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for calling, Karina. I'm doing really well, thanks. How are you? I am doing the best that I can every single day, just staying grateful and washing my hands. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Same here. If you could, just please take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners. Great, thanks. My name is Shaila Raghav. I am the Vice President of Climate Change at Conservation International, and my role is to oversee um, our climate change strategy and programs. 
Um, Conservation International is present in about 30 countries around the world, and we have um, our headquarters is in Arlington, Virginia. And our mission is really about protecting nature for the well-being of humanity. And so the types of solutions that I work on are stopping deforestation, providing support and guidance to governments and to local communities to find um, investment solutions, policy solutions to protect nature for a more sustainable and healthy future. Sure. Speaking of protection, we are all in protective mode right now. Protect our health, protect our families, protect our community. With that said, I think comes a sense of question and people are speculating on whether or not the COVID-19 pandemic is a result of climate change. Can you speak to that a little bit for me? Yeah, I think that's a really, really important question. And I think that our tendency is always to try to find connections between trends, but also to be able to find um, or or get some good news, right, or find a silver lining uh, amidst everything that we're experiencing. Um, there isn't really any strong evidence that climate change is a direct cause of the coronavirus and its spread. Um, but what we can what we do know is that climate change is um, has a direct influence on the migration of species. Mm-hmm. And so, in particular, what we're seeing is that ranges of species, whether it's even trees and and plants where they can grow or migratory patterns of species like fish or even birds and insects, these are all changing because of shifts in temperature and precipitation that is being caused by climate change. But I'd also like to highlight the fact that climate change is, is something that could multiply the losses and damages in times of crisis. So imagine if on top of dealing with COVID-19, we were also experiencing a drought or cataclysmic fires like we saw in Australia or in the Amazon. It would really just have the impact of exacerbating those inequalities. For example, we have seen some um, unusual earthquakes as well as tornadoes happening right now. And as we experience in our own communities the COVID-19 crisis, I can only imagine the devastation somewhere that was, you know, hit by a tornado during a time like this. Exactly. And, and climate change can, can also affect human health even more by putting strain on vulnerable populations or even increasing um, things like heat stress or the spread of disease vectors uh, like mosquitoes that um, increase incidence of, of diseases like malaria. And so the human health implications are really going to be even more difficult to deal with when compounded with viruses and diseases like COVID-19. So I really think the main message here is that climate change and human health are um, inextricably linked. Mm. Now, what we're seeing um, as a result of people uh, social distancing and isolating in their homes is that pollution levels have dropped around the world as people stay home. Is this a hidden benefit of the pandemic? Do you think this will inspire people to limit their fossil fuel use once things get back to normal? Yeah, I think that's that's also another another um, um, uh, trend that we're seeing so much in the news. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, I think everyone's looking for something positive to come out of um, of, of all of the the negative consequences of COVID nineteen. But I wouldn't necessarily call the drop in air pollution levels a hidden benefit because they're likely just going to be temporary. And we haven't really, as a society, made the systemic shift that are needed for these gains to persist or be sustained in the long term. So the the way that I'd rather look at some of these short-term benefits is to focus on 
on preparation and how we could have prepared better. So imagine if we had listened to the warnings from ep- epidemiologists and others and, and prepared right five, six, ten years ago. How different would that outcome have been um, in terms of how we're dealing with and experiencing losses due, due to this crisis right now? How would we have changed the future and how would we have acted to do that um, even just so that little that the virus could be contained or mitigated and our economy could be more resilient and prepared for that. So I think with climate change, the timeline is very clear and so are the consequences. Mm. So the question that we have now is how will we use these next few years knowing what we know now and knowing that we have the opportunity to prepare better and to, to create a more resilient economy so that we, 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 we don't have to lose jobs, we don't have to decimate economy, our, our economy, we can actually address the, uh, climate change by building new and clean and thriving economies. So that's really what I hope we can take away from um, our, our lessons from, from dealing with COVID-19. Oh, absolutely. Because learning from the tragedy is the most important part of triumph over adversity. That said, what can we do to make those preparations? Yeah. So in the next 10 years, the science is really clear. Um, Emissions need to be halved by 2030. So we we basically have a decade to cut our emissions in half. And we know the types of solutions that that can get us there. So it's clean and renewable energy. It's greening our agriculture system and our food system through regenerative agriculture and shifting towards more of a plant-based diet. Um, shifting to public transportation, um, reduction of overall consumption like plastics and other products that take a lot of energy to produce. So making those immediate changes now in our infrastructure, in our decisions and our patterns today can set us up to be in a position to really achieve that outcome over the next 10 years. Um, The second thing I would say is that since climate change is fundamentally like COVID-19, a global crisis, it's going to require worldwide cooperation and attention to really focus on on a coherent and and coordinated global response where um, we can see a basis for for global signals, global um, alignment and redirecting of financial flows. Um, And so that's the second thing I would say is just really band together um, um, as uh, through political signals and political processes that can help um, develop a global response. And then the last thing I would say is to support um, natural climate solutions, which includes planting of trees, restoration of natural ecosystems and protection of standing forests. This is really my personal passion um, because a third or more of the solution to climate change comes from protecting and restoring nature. Um, And guess what? These solutions can also help maintain um, the resilience of our planet, um, provide us with clean air and clean water, and might also very well prevent the spread of viruses that so severely affect human health as well. I absolutely agree 100% in that it is going to require everyone working together on the same page in order to surmount seemingly impossible feats, for sure. One last thing, Shyla, before uh, I let you go, what is one way individuals can give back to nature and be a part of the bigger climate solution at the same time? Yeah. 2020 is such an important year, so I think making, um, addressing climate change a priority, making it a voting issue, 
an investment lens when you're looking at where you put your investments, your retirement portfolios, um, make it demands that we that that we make as shareholders and consumers of many large companies talking about it more. There's really um, something that every single person can do, no matter what your skill set, to activate creativity and and kind of that ideation process of bringing solutions to the market. Um, the other thing that people can do is um, use a tool that we developed that is available on our webpage. It's a carbon calculator, and it allows users to measure their carbon footprint and give back to conservation projects designed to keep forests standing and to help um, scale up restoration efforts. So um, listeners can visit conservation.org slash calculator. And after using the calculator and uh, assessing their carbon footprint, they can learn more about reforestation and conservation projects to which a donation can help um, support um, forests in the Amazon, in places like Peru or Kenya. Um, and so these are, this is really something specific and tangible that, that everyone can do um, immediately um, and can also help us to maintain our uh, optimism, our hope, and our sense of community um, in coming together around addressing climate change and, and, and protecting our planet for, for our future. Oh, I absolutely love that. Okay, so while our listeners have you know, a little bit of time on their hands and they're on their computers. They can check out that carbon calculator. Can you give us the website one more time, please? Absolutely. It's conservation.org slash calculator. I love it. All right, Shyla, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You stay safe out there. Thank you, Karina. Karina Delgado from one of our sister stations, The Drive in Washington, D.C., joining us on our program on The Fan. It's Anne Liguori who is talking golf at 7 this Sunday morning. We are joined in uh, this portion of our program by a guest who we've spoken with um, at sort of the tail end of 2019. Here we are, we're in a new year, and he is joining us to talk with us about a new project. Um, we're talk- talking and joined on our program by Rich Kahan. Uh, he had joined us before on our program. He, along with Michael Williams, have been involved in putting together a publication entitled River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It. Uh, Richard and uh, Michael are both photo historians, and they have some interesting things to share with us. He's joined us um, by phone on this portion of our program. Rich, it's nice to talk with you again. Hey, Bob, thank you so much for, for calling. What was putting this project together? What was this like, and, and how did you come up with this idea? Well, as you mentioned, uh, uh, my colleague Mike and I are now considered a term photo historian, since the term that we weren't even sure what it was when we first heard it. But <laughs> you, you had to Google it, right? Uh, yeah, right. yeah, and there was and there was no Google. Right. Uh, so, so actually, we're both journalists, but um, uh, but we write books that are oftentimes based on photographic collections, and we use those collections to help better understand life. Uh, we did a book on um, the incarceration of Japanese Americans where we used photographs from the government that showed what it was like during the World War II for Japanese Americans to, to be uh, taken away and interned during the war. And um, we came across a collection of interviews of formerly enslaved men and women that are actually online. It's on a site, the Library Congress site. And... Um, We've been reading a lot about those interviews. There's been many books based on them, but very few books have ever taken uh, 
the portraits of these formerly enslaved men and women and paired them with their words. And by connecting the photographs and the words, we found there was great power. Um, in the late 1930s, the federal government uh, interviewed over 3,000 formerly enslaved men and women, and they photographed um, three, uh, a little over 300 of them. And this book is a, is a look at 96 of those interviews, and we've taken the essence of their words and combined it, uh, paired it on the next page with photographs. How did you choose the 96? Well, we've studied slavery pretty extensively in the last several years, and we wanted to touch all of the major issues uh, that, that, are, uh, that we wanted to talk about work, we wanted to talk about identity, we wanted to talk about what, uh, obviously we wanted to talk about violence, and we wanted to talk about uh, the end of slavery. Uh, uh, well, I should say the end of slavery at the, at, at the end of the Civil War in the South. Uh, so we talked about freedom, and we talked about Reconstruction, things like um, Jim Crow, things like that. And we were always looking for moments where these people talked about these issues, and then we would combine their portraits. And in doing a project like this, what do you... Um, I always like to ask in interviews what people get out of the experience. I mean, what did yeah. you learn from this? Oh, my gosh. Um, like most people, I learned about slavery first, I think, in high school. And um, I didn't read many firsthand accounts. And it's, that's, that's what this does. Um, this is not filtered through any historians. These words are not filtered through any historians. Um, and I think the accounts were eloquent and um, mind-opening. And it brought me back. It, it helped me very much understand what happened uh, uh, before and during the Civil War in the South. And the power. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the sheer, and I'm going to use the word raw power that not only the words, but the pictures have. Absolutely. These words are poetic. Uh, they're from the heart. It's just a gift that the federal government did this in the late 1930s, that they thought that the experiences of the formerly enslaved men and women were important enough to document. They did it carefully. Uh, and interestingly, uh, people, th th this collection is called the Slave Narrative Collection. And um, people, many people know about the collection, but I, it's the photographs that have been forgotten. And to see uh, an 80-year-old man looking back and saying that he was given away as a wedding gift by his, the, his slaveholder, and um, you see him as a dignified older man, and 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 they talk so matter-of-factly that this happened. That um, you know they weren't trying to. Uh, there was there was great kindness in their words. They were trying to reconcile what they had gone through, but uh, there was there was certainly a directness to what they said. Well, you know, it's as as you're saying that I'm thinking it makes the experience of of reading, of, of viewing the pictures, it makes it personal. It does. Uh, it's as if they're, they're right across from you. Exactly. You see them. Um, interestingly, uh, when the project was conceived, John Lomax, who was the, uh, anthropologist who, who's, who was one of the, who's, who was one of the visionaries, of the project 
saw this idea that it was as if they were in a convention. They, they had a convention, and everyone was getting together, and they were all comparing notes, in a sense, about what life was like. And that's how we put this book together. It's not just 96 random thoughts. Uh, one person leads to another. It's as if somebody stops their story. It's just like in a conversation, and somebody else would pick it up almost from there. So we've divided it into you know different chapters, and there's a, a chapter of you know as I said identity, and 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 what and the chapter on what life was like day to day, and so you 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 go through this experience with them. So it gets us so much away from, and it was something that in a way seemed like you might have kind of been alluding to, because many of us are experience in the formal education process with learning about slavery was mm-hmm. rather detached. You know, it was the intellectual approach. Um, you know, it, in many cases it was, you were just literally just reading words. Okay. Absolutely. They talk about the capitalism of slavery. Uh, in high school, we learn about the politics of slavery. It always then kind of slides over to the civil war. But there's very little about the what happened, human, personal. You know, that's what that's what these accounts. That's how these accounts affected me. And the other aspect of it is, when this ended, you know, at the end of the Civil War, what happened? That, those are some of the most worthwhile moments in reading it, because what happened was there was no plan. All of a sudden, for, 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 for many, they weren't even told that the Civil War had ended. They weren't even told they were free. Some, it, oftentimes, slaveholders took months to tell, to say anything, because they wanted their fields uh, cultivated. Uh, some people, it took years to, to learn. But when they learned, uh, there was this moment of, what do we do now? You know, we, many, you know, very few. Not very few, but but a majority of formerly enslaved men and women could not read or write, so they didn't have those skills. Um, they certainly had other skills, and those skills basically kept them in the fields. And oftentimes, they continued working for their slaveholder because you know, with with a very very modest income, because they had no choices. Mm. Wow. This type of an approach. You know, it it's a treasure in a way that these interviews were done, uh, and this is a long time ago when they were right. done. Right. And as you said, you know, there are people who know about the fact that the interviews took place, but the images basically could have been lost forever. Yeah, that's what struck us the most. Um, interestingly, the photographs were taken by the men and women who interviewed, who, who did the interviews. Isn't that interesting? And it's very interesting. And they weren't professional photographers. So That's what I'm used, thinking of. Yeah. yeah. We're used to doing books by really, you know, Dorothea Lange and Walker Evans and great names of photography. But these were amateurs who basically were given little uh, brownie cameras usually. And they were, and, and usually the interview would end with, and, and there's, there's notes of this, uh, do you mind, ma'am, if I take your picture? And they would say, sure, that's fine. And at first, you know, the pictures are, I, I would say the pictures are somewhat amateurish because they're not taken by professionals. So sometimes they're a little, uh, a little foggy. But once you get beyond that, 
you see the incredible value of these photographs because here you have people who are who are who are posing sometimes usually very dignified the men oftentimes put on suits uh, but oftentimes they're posing in the field and you see their suspenders and you see their old shoes uh, one or two people have their pants being held up by by rope I mean there's a very on the whole very poor people but the dignity they, they bring to this portraiture is remarkable. And then you see little hints, the rocking chair, the porch, the house, the fields in the background. One woman posed in the middle of her wash on the line and uh, in work clothes. And these people are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. But somehow they knew, they could sense how important this was. This was their one chance to both uh, talk about their experiences and I don't want to use the word pose. They, they did pose, but pose in a really beautiful, dramatic way. And these photos were pretty much forgotten. And that's what the I think if there's any new ground that this book does, it's taking those photographs and connecting to these words. Did you at all wonder why no one else had approached this? I did. Um and I think the answer is that for so many academicians, and those are the people that have written these books in the past, and mm-hmm. there's been many, they never value photographs the way they should. Why? Um, because I think they're trained to use words, mm. and they're trained in the value of words. And, you know, if you look at history books, um, I mean, academic books, there are pictures sometimes in books, but they're oftentimes called plates, and they oftentimes don't even connect with the section in the in the manuscript. You know, they'll, they'll talk about somebody, and then two pages later, you'll see this person, and, uh, you, and they'll literally say, you know, see figure 1.3. And they don't understand the power of words and pictures together on the whole. And I think that's what happened here. Mike and I looked at each other. This was, I think, two or three years ago when we kind of came across this collection, which most of the pictures and most of the words are actually online, but they're not online in this way. And, um, and we realized that when you, when, you, when you look at somebody and then you hear their words, that it creates a power that, that nothing else can do. It's an interesting because as I'm listening to you talk about those academics and, you know, I'm thinking in a way they have a word bias, um, <laughs> They do. That is taking place there, although I understand it's well-meaning on their part. Uh, we're talking on our program with um, Rich Cahan. Uh, he is uh, talking with us about the publication River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It. Uh, he is a photo historian. He, along with uh, Michael Williams, putting this publication together. Why that title for the publication, by the way? Well, we saw references to blood so often in these interviews, I think there's six or seven of them in my book, and there's dozens, obviously, in the entire slave narratives. Um, and we kept thinking about this image that keeps coming back to people who, who, who talk about slavery. Blood was a, a part of their lives. Um, and, and so we took it from a quote. One, one, one woman um, talked about seeing a river of blood. Uh, her name was Lou Williams. And she she talked about hearing people holler and and when it rained uh, she 
could just see streams of blood where the whippings had taken place. And we wanted to cue people into the fact that this is a pretty uh, unvarnished view of a real tragedy of American history. I mean, talk about painting a real picture of what took place. I mean, what you just said in quoting her, I mean, the power of that message. It does. There's a lot of humor and there's a lot of hope and a lot of accounts of resistance in this book, but there's also a lot of violence. There is. We, 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 we didn't want to avoid it. We weren't interested in avoiding it. This is the one chance for people in America to, to see it together, you know, and so, um, so it's, 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 it's a rough but important book. Uh, but, but I think more than anything else, it's, it's a book of testimony. It's a book of testimony that really provides insight and eloquence and, you know, uh, the terrible odds that, that these people lived under and how here they are in 1937, uh, almost 75 years or 75 years after slavery, after it was ended, and they're sitting on their back porch and they're talking about it. It's a, it's a book of, of the triumph of humanity in, in many ways. It's a book of America. It is. You know, when it you is. get right down to it, it really is. I mean, it's, it's an American history lesson. And the experiences that these people faced uh, did follow them throughout their lives and does follow their, their ancestors. Mm. Well, that's the interesting thing as well about this, because, you know, you think of the words, you think of the images, and then you think of the legacy of all of this. Um, what is your hope that those who view this work are going to take away from it? My hope is that they'll read it and look at it. Um, after that, I don't have any great hopes because I think that the words are so powerful and the pictures are so important that I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to, to those two things to um, affect them. Uh, I can't imagine somebody looking at this book and not being affected and learning more about, as you say, America, about American life. And you talk about the story of America. Uh, this smacks you in the face at, at times because, yes, there's some, some brutal honesty in it, um, but it is a phenomenal history lesson. Yeah, I think I, I go back to the words um, and how eloquent they are. Um, they often, mo most of these people were interviewed by, by white men and women. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, um, these, these men who were not trained uh, dialecticians, but they, they, they tried to capture their words in, the, in what they considered was the, exactly how they heard it. So there's, there is this uh, African-American vernacular English uh, in, in many of the inter interviews. And at first, it's kind of like when you were in high school and you started reading Huckleberry Finn and you saw the dialect there and you said, I can't read this. This is too hard. But after you've read a couple of them, it gets very easy. And, um, and you see the beauty of these words. Um, one of the uh, Works Progress Administration administrators, which oversaw this progress pro process, really talked about it being poetry. And that's exactly what I think it is. Phenomenal project. Um, our guest, this portion of our program, Rich Cahan. Uh, Rich, along with Michael Williams, photo historians for River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It, 
Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly the best with this uh, publication. I always ask, what's the next project? Bob, for once in our lives, we're slowing down, and we're going. We're, this is the most important project we've ever done, and we intend to talk about it um, and and um, promote it because not because we're promoting the project, but we're promoting what's inside it, and and we think that's really important. So for right now, uh, we're we're concentrating on this book. I think I may fall off my chair. You're actually slowing down, and and and. Well, Take, taking this in, good for you. We're, 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 we hope to. It's hard. <laughs> we really care about this. You know, you mentioned one quick thing. You mentioned um, about words and the importance of words. And now, I think in society, we really see the importance of pictures. You know, put, put, try putting a Facebook post online without a picture, and you'll see how many people look at it. <laughs> so, I think that we've come, come around to understand the value of photographs. We certainly have. Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly the best with this effort and with your work. Thank you, Bob, very much. This is Bob Salter. Thanks for joining us on our program this Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.